0: Welcome back to Pastoralia on the Restoration Radio. I'm your host for today, by exception, actually, as I'm usually on the other end of this as the guest. I'm Father Stephen McKenna, and I'm here with a very special guest of my own to help explain a lot that is going on, Dr. Dan Stanislawski. Welcome, Dan, to the show. Thank you very much for having me. For those of you who may not know, Dan has a PhD in molecular biology and biochemistry. Is that correct? That is correct. Excellent. Well, we're here today to get into talking about the big thing that's going around in society, as we know it, in the medical world, especially in the science world. And that is the new vaccine that is being put out for treatment of what is commonly known as the coronavirus, the SARS-CoV-2 virus that has changed all of our lives in so many ways whether justified or not, but we are here to kind of unwrap some of the mystery behind this because it is definitely one that is clouded with misinformation, with mystery, with confusion, with high hopes and giant blanket promises that it's only fair that not only as from an advisory point of view, we deal with it, but also even because it's such a new concept that we actually, for your benefit, sort of explain what's going on, what this new treatment actually is, dispel some of the myths that are out there that's on both ends of it, or whether it be from the, the great white hope of, of salvation of mankind, that this virus is going to save us all, to the other end of the spectrum, where there's a lot of misinformation of, of fear-mongering out of falsehoods that are produced and everything this episode is here to sort of provide at least from the scientific means a basic understanding of it of actually what is entailed in these vaccines now it goes as sort of a caveat that today is january 20th when we're recording this in 2021 so this is a topic that is constantly evolving as it were that i know that dan and myself both writing uh a paper with Dan's help on it a bit. And then both of us researching for the show and everything, they're working together in this. I assume yours is the same experience as mine, Dan, that, that you're constantly being bombarded with new information and some of it bad information and some of it relevant and good information and having to parse through that. So this is our understanding based on the science that is available in the reliable sources. Mm-hmm. Right now, today, the 20th of January, as to what is entailed in this this vaccine and what we can understand about that, which is still pretty substantial, Mm -hmm. but there also are questions left to be answered. There's still possibility of more information to come out. There's still difficulty or near impossible to get your hands on, really, some of the information related to some of the, the trials and things like that that have been done already up to this point. So... As we see it right now, what we can know, we're going to try to digest and and present to you in the way of information with the caveat that something may change in the future, or also the caveat that there are many different vaccines that are being produced all at the same time from different companies using different technologies. It would be impossible for us to cover every type of version of this. We're here to get the big general idea of the new technology which is being used, which is being called the mRNA vaccine version of the, the vaccine against COVID-19. So that's just our caveat to go along with this. And before we dive into it, I do also want to just very briefly recap episode 18, which came out last year that I guess spurred us on into Continuing with this COVID vaccine aspect of it, I recorded January last year, actually right around this time, a show, Dan helped me do the research on it, about vaccines in general. It was in this old world where we didn't even know of COVID-19 yet, and, and we were just so young and hopeful and naive in those times, and things were just sort of as they seemed in the world. We didn't know the barrel of the gun that we were staring down yet, so I did a show in uh, last season that I do recommend, not as a toting of my own horn, but a point of it being a very good background of information about the basic concepts of vaccines, how they work. There's so many various different types of vaccines, but in the general principle, what goes into vaccines a lot of times, how some of those things can be concerning regarding health. What's the morality towards vaccines, the question of morality in vaccines in general? You know Are they sinful? Are they not? We cover all of that in a general view in that episode 18 of Pastoralia, that vaccine overview. This is a sort of a continuation on with a more specific view of that. So, If you haven't already listened to the original vaccine show, I highly recommend you do so. But just as a real quick kind of point to cover so we don't backtrack into what doesn't need to be covered and is that vaccines themselves is not inherently evil. To receive a vaccine is, is something that in and of itself is an indifferent action from a moral point of view. It's, it's a medical treatment given for the hopes of presenting a possible diseases or, or contagions where you receive it via a shot, generally speaking, and that that hopefully helps your body that's the hope that it would help your body in fighting off these uh, future infections. Now, one of the biggest things that came up and then one of the main purposes of doing that show was the question of morality of vaccines because of the fact that most, not all, but a majority of vaccines used today include fetal cell line that are used for the making of the vaccines. And what that basically is, is that they have these fetal cells from aborted fetuses that they take and that they use to help deliver the viral loads, the either dead or inert virus, a weakened virus to a person to help that be accepted in, and by the human body and, and to develop the antibodies and the, you know all that goes into that aspect of it. So the big question came up, well, if it includes aborted fetal tissue, wouldn't that be immoral? And in that show, we laid out the principles behind it. First off, that it would not be a sin to, to receive a vaccine based on the fetal cell lines in it because of the fact that your participation in that evil, that abortion that took place, is far too remote to incur any guilt towards that. There are five fetal cell lines which are used, essentially each cell line, each fetal cell line is one aborted baby. And granted, I know this is disgusting. I'm not promoting this in any way, shape or form as like a good thing, but I'm just purely approaching it from the morality of you, the receiver of the vaccine. Those cell lines were developed between the years 1965 and 1985, and they were essentially
1: immortalized which then what what does that mean to immortalize a cell line well essentially they treat it chemically and sometimes with viruses that they essentially give the cells cancer and so if you provide a cancer cell with enough nutrients it will just keep dividing and grow basically forever right Mm -hmm. and so they immortalize these cell lines grow up a bunch of them and freeze them and then they can just keep bringing them out of freezing in small quantities and keep using them forever.
0: Right. So every time we use fetal cell lines and I mean we meaning human population the scientists that develop vaccines they are using cells from these original aborted fetuses from anywhere between 35 and 55 years ago and they have been essentially made so that they continually to this day continue to replicate and divide and so you have essentially a never ending source of of cell tissue and to make a a vaccine it's it's not like not to be gross but i mean i think you know sometimes we really wonder what is being done it's not like you're having whole parts of children put into a vaccine we're literally talking about small cell scrapings that Probably can't even see with the naked eye,
1: I, I, I guess, or close to to that portion of it. Well, you can see them without a microscope, just in their culture growing. But yeah, right, yeah.
0: And so, because of that, again, not that it's not disgusting, not that it's not an abhorrent practice or something that should never have been done, should not be continued to be done. But our participation in that being so far removed from it is something that we, if you, if you're sitting there wondering, did I sin because I had my son vaccinated or did I sin because I got the flu vaccine or something like that? No, no, you haven't. And no, you wouldn't even going forward because it's too far removed to be your guilt of that original abortion. Now, what I also go into with that is that that does not mean that there aren't other reasons why we should be concerned about vaccines. It should be something that there are a lot of nasty chemicals that are in them. There are things that over time have been shown to have real concerns towards real health risks and and development of other diseases and problems and things like that. Again, all covered in that original episode that is definitely worth listening to. And, And my only point with it is that every parent of children before they have them vaccinated should do some research, look into it, make a conscious, well educated decision, whether it's the right decision for you or for your children to receive something like that. If you have further questions about it, anything in regards to the morality, don't hesitate to ask your priest. In those type of things, it's better to be well informed and make a good decision for you and for your family than to be ignorant. Of those realities, but it's important that we don't get caught up in the easy, low-hanging fruit of well, it has a fetal tissue, so therefore, it's automatically sinful. That's not necessarily the case, and that can actually lead to more problems than solving problems in the long run because it's more commonly used than than you would imagine, right? Then, so I mean, like, don't they use it in other stuff too? Uh, those like research and development and things. Oh like that? yeah,
1: absolutely. The especially the HEK cell line is virtually ubiquitous in pharmaceutical research. So um, if you're concerned about, you know, for example, the mRNA vaccines are they're not produced in these cell lines, they're just tested in them. And if that's your condition for tossing out the use of these vaccines, you basically have to toss out all the other pharmaceuticals you're using. Right. So any pharmaceutical drug
0: at some point in line most likely had testing Done involving using these human cell lines, even if they don't contain the cell lines themselves, also with that you know anybody who's capable of doing the science to produce any kind of medication has themselves had to necessarily do experimentations with these cell lines to to even pass exams or to uh, meet qualifications and and various other things, and so it's it, again, it's not that it's not something that is abhorrent and disgusting and in a horrible reality. It's just a, that we understand the, where that reality lies, and that you know that it is sort of um, it is sort of the unavoidable um, ugly aspect of anything to do with medicine, and and that uh, just because it's out there. We shouldn't automatically think that that all medicine is bad or all treatments are, are, are bad, or we can't take these things necessarily because they've had connection to this aspect of it from a moral, purely moral standpoint, morality alone, our participation in that is, is not sufficient to rise to the point of anything sinful. So now that we kind of have that recap on the 18th episode done for general vaccines. We could get into now the the question at hand, the new mRNA technology being used for the purposes of fighting against the um, SARS-CoV-2 virus, uh, commonly known as the coronavirus, uh, which came out of Wuhan, China. So I think a good starting point, because we're going to necessarily dive into the world of genetics with this that we give our listeners some basic understanding of of genetics from a base level uh, in a very simple way. So maybe a good way to start, Dan, would be we're all made up of genetic material, right? So as a human being, like, what's
1: our basic genetic makeup? So basic genetic makeup would be uh, DNA. So everyone's heard of DNA. But what DNA is, is essentially information that codes for what are called proteins. So in, in this flow of information, it starts at the genetic DNA level. And when that DNA gets expressed, the final form of that expression is a protein. And what a protein is, is, is basically a little machine that performs whatever function it's designed to perform within your cell.
0: Okay, so all of my cells have DNA in them, right? Yes. And the coding, we almost think of it in terms like computer basically right if the coding of the of the dna however that material is organized determines what types of proteins it makes and what types of functions those cells perform exactly yes so the fact that my skin cells are skin cells and operate as skin comes from the genetic makeup of the DNA in my skin right. cells.
1: It, exactly. So in your skin cells, there are certain proteins that are expressed or turned on that aren't expressed in your blood cells or your neurons and mm-hmm. that type of thing, right? Mm-hmm. Even though your neurons have the same genetic material as your skin, it just depends on what genes are actually turned on in those different cells.
0: Ah, okay. So it's, a, it's sort of like maybe for like an analogy of this would be almost like your cell is the is the house And you have the electrical breaker there. And the breaker has all of the power to the house. And depending on what you want to do, you could turn on the power to the lights, Mm -hmm. and you could turn the lights on. Or you could turn on the power to the hot water heater, and the hot water heater comes on, Mm -hmm. or the the, the plugs come on, or depending on what breaker you switch on. Yeah, that's that's pretty good. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so that's how our DNA works for our, our own genetic makeup. And you say it makes these proteins and, and everything like that. Now, what makes a virus run? Does that have a genetic makeup too? Or what, what, is, what is a virus and how does
1: it work? Right. So there are different types of viruses. Uh, there are DNA viruses and there are RNA viruses. Um, and so in this case, SARS-CoV-2 is a, an RNA virus. Okay. Okay. And so now we've established what RNA is. And so, in the the flow of information from DNA to protein, there's an intermediate step, and that is when DNA actually gets converted into mRNA, right? And there are a ton of different types of RNA. Which I mean, it's such a broad subject that people spend their careers working in these fields, right? So it'll be far too broad a subject for us to talk about here. But directly, the the flow of information to make a protein goes DNA to mRNA, right? And then that mRNA gets read by things called ribosomes in your cell and these ribosomes turn that mRNA into protein.
0: Okay. So our bodies make an mRNA which obviously is included in the idea of this this this
1: vaccine but it is RNA. So that's so, so right. Sorry. So the the virus is a a mixture of basically proteins and then mRNA. And in this case The the RNA is actually encapsulated by a protein envelope. And then on on the outside of this protein envelope, there's a different protein called the spike protein, right? Mm -hmm. And so that spike protein is looking for a target, and that target is what's called the ACE2 receptor. We won't really get into details about that, but essentially the spike protein binds to the ACE2 receptor. Then it, it is able to penetrate into the cell, and then it releases the RNA from that protein envelope virus releases the RNA into the cell so that the RNA can gain access to the ribosomes to make its protein so it can actually replicate itself many times over within a cell. Okay, so
0: if we think of a a virus as a cell, or the coronavirus as a cell, right, then instead of being like our cells, which have the genetic makeup of DNA, its genetic makeup is RNA. And then different aspects of that cell are made up of various proteins from its own genetic makeup, Mm -hmm. including the spike protein that uh, injects it into our cells to to reproduction and things Mm -hmm. like that. And so that's sort of the genetic difference, I guess you could say, between the COVID virus and us is that that it is this different type of sequencing Mm -hmm. of genetics. And the mRNA
1: part of it is what. So what what is mRNA? So mRNA is is just messenger RNA. The M stands for messenger. Okay. So it's parts of the RNA then, or is it the entirety? Well, so the RNA viruses are mRNA, yeah, in the sense that they get read by the by these ribosomes to make proteins, right? But okay. Um, All right. So the M
0: doesn't necessarily differentiate it from when well, we see RNA and we see mRNA. It's essentially the same stuff right right it's just per, the m is actually indicating that it's performing a function
1: right in normal cells it's just the message right the m, m sensor message so it's the message from the dna to make the protein right okay. and it's just and the, these sars cov 2 viruses they're just releasing the rna i don't think people call it mrna though technically that it works it works because it's it's going to be accessing the ribosome to to read it to make it okay. to replicate itself to replicate the the proteins.
0: Okay. All right. So
1: the mRNA
0: M stands for the messenger and that is what the cells ribosomes use to to make the proteins that is desired. And you're talking about a virus coming in and injecting its RNA into your cell mm-hmm. to match up with the ribosomes to be read mm-hmm. and then to produce these proteins. That's how infection works. Is that correct?
1: Right, exactly. So eventually, the virus will replicate enough times inside of a cell that the cell can no longer sustain the viral load. So it'll burst open and it will release all these other virus copies into your bloodstream. And then they're going to go find other cellular hosts and repeat that same process over and over again right? okay. until eventually it swamps your body, assuming you don't have a sufficient immune response to the virus. So now,
0: when we get sick, if we do contract a virus, just in general, right? and eventually that replication of the virus and in the infection in us gets to a point where we actually get sick. So I get a fever and I start coughing and my nose starts running and I get the sore throat and all of these things. What is that actually? Is that your body fighting against it
1: or is that your body suffering under it? It's both. Is like right. the- well, I guess you could say it is both. Um, but it is a perfectly normal response, right? Your body raises the total body temperature in order to create a habitat where the virus doesn't want to be there any longer, right? Mm-hmm. And so, and then the coughing, sneezing, that type of stuff is you're spewing out the excess viral load that that uh, your body no longer wants to have in it because it can't handle it. So it's, it's trying to lessen its load by by getting that stuff out of your body, right? So those things are perfectly normal. However, of course, when you're when you're doing those things. You know, coughing and sneezing and whatnot—you could be spreading it to others,
0: (laughs) (laughs) right? So that's that's how it transmits from one person to another—is by the coughing and the sneezing and the and all the the loveliness of of that of what that entails. Mm -hmm. So, so just because we get sick, does not mean that our bodies are insufficient in fighting against viruses. It actually means the opposite—that our bodies are actively fighting them. And yes. Complications can arise, or maybe this, its ability to fight is not sufficient to continue to, to win that battle against uh, that, which is what ends up being complications and and can ultimately even lead towards death. But the fact that your body does have that that sick response
1: to it is, in in fact, your immune system working. Right. And yeah, and everyone's different, obviously, because some people they don't get sick, right? They, they actually have very strong immune systems and you never see them taking days off of work because they're not, they don't throw up ever. They don't get fevers. They don't, you know, catch colds. And these people sometimes have very good immune systems. Yeah.
0: I always believed that my mother was that because it seemed like no matter how many times me and my brother would get sick, like she would just keep on trucking and she would be there, you know, taking care of us and, you know. Making sure that we were you know the food was still cooked, and you know we got the medicine and we were taken care of as we lay on the couch, feeling like we were dying and everything and so I always thought that she had like super immune system and maybe that came with being a mom and then when I told her that she just said oh no, we just didn't have time to show that we were sick or something like that. So I don't, I, either way, it was always impressive. And I think, you know, in general, I think moms are probably pretty robust in that way. And, uh, you know, we suffer from the man flu and where they just keep kind of trucking along as it, as it were. Um, so now with that understanding of how a virus works, how basic infection works, the novel coronavirus, the, the, SARS-CoV-2 that we're talking about here, it essentially operates in the same manner, correct? Right. Yes. So there's nothing in and of itself that's extraordinary. You could make arguments to whether rate of infection or intensity or whatever is stronger or weaker than other virus that are out there, but but to say that in operation it's extraordinary is is not really accurate it it operates the way other similar viruses do especially similar viruses and the fact that it's not
1: the only coronavirus is that is that correct like there have been other coronaviruses that have come before it definitely everyone probably remembers sars cov one the original one Um, there is also mers the middle eastern respiratory syndrome same family of viruses, and yes. also the common cold, the human is a, is a coronavirus right,
0: so yeah, because we, we do remember you know in the early 2000s right that there was the scare of SARS mm-hmm. as they called it, which was as you said SARS covid one, mm-hmm. so there's the the SARS virus, there's MERS Middle Eastern respiratory uh, syndrome yes. syndrome, and um, we remember MERS coming out um, and then it's always interesting to understand that the, the common cold is, is a is also a coronavirus and And the coronavirus, when we hear coronavirus, it's just talking about the shape and operation of it. Is that correct?
1: Right. Yeah. Because it has the crown like shape, which comes from the spike protein. Because they all have the same structural similarity, especially in terms of the spike protein.
0: So I think at this point in time, any of our listeners who have been somewhat even paying attention and seen videos from the news or from, you know, other sources of information and things like that. I mean, at this point, it's pretty hard to hide from a lot of the propaganda out there against COVID-19. But if you're wondering what, what we're talking about with this spike protein, because it is really important, as we'll get into about how it, this the, the vaccine operates, when you see a COVID cell, like a drawing rendering of it, which um that we have it looks like a ball but it looks like a ball with like little arms sticking out of it little almost like a like a really ugly looking koosh ball as it were for those of us that that grew up at the same time dan and i did uh, it looks it looks like a ball but it has all these little appendages sticking out of it Mm -hmm. um and those little nubs those are the spikes, that's right? That's right, yep. Those are the spike proteins that we, that we talked about that makes it that family of virus mm-hmm. kind of unique as right. from other viruses.
1: That right. are Right, and, and what that's doing is it's, it's moving through your bloodstream according to what's called, you know, browning motion. I mean, it's obviously pumping because, mm-hmm. you know... Uh, the it can't pressure itself, right? Right, right. The, it's, it's, So it's not directing itself on where it's going. So it's just kind of floating. And Brownian motion is random motion of molecules uh, in a fluid, so it's randomly, you know, circulating through your blood, and it's hoping these spike proteins find its target, and um, which it can latch onto, and um, that targets ACE two receptor, and it just sticks on, sticks to the receptor, and then enters the cell. Okay, so that's, that
0: ends up and basically working as like a tube from from the virus to your cell, and the genetic material moves through that spike, moves through that tube from one body into the other to infect that body. Right. Yeah. That's a, that's a good way to put it. Yeah. Okay. So now when we talk about the, the mRNA vaccine, how does that theoretically work? How is, so they, they have this thing. We've never heard of it before. I mean, you know, maybe that's a good place to start. What is it a new technology and is it a new application in the, in the world of vaccines?
1: Is it, and, and just how does that function? Right. So good questions. It's a relatively new technology. It, it has been around longer than, um, most people think. But what it was used for was gene therapy for, for cancers, right? They are using this mRNA technology. Um, in terms of its application, in terms of a vaccine, yeah, this is the first time that that's happened, especially the first time it's been, um, used in the, in a public setting. Absolutely. And then it gets to the question of whether or not this is technically a vaccine where it is not technically a vaccine because part of what makes a vaccine is that you're actually injecting material from the virus itself into your body. Well, with this mRNA vaccine, the mRNA is actually synthetically made, which means they they can make it in a lab in a test tube and it doesn't actually come from the virus. So they're injecting something that is not from the virus, it's something that they created themselves, right? And so the way that this works, the mechanism that the mRNA vaccines work is that they're recapitulating the, the spike protein by injecting mRNA, which again, mRNA will enter your cell um, and interact with your ribosomes. And then they'll essentially hijack the cell protein-making machinery to make a lot of these spike proteins. They'll just make so many spike proteins that they'll eventually go out into your bloodstream and they, your immune system will recognize that, like, hey, this is not supposed to be here. And then it'll create immune response to the, the, the spike protein that was synthesized from the synthetic mRNA that was injected into you.
0: Okay. So, so first off,
1: we're not using the actual virus. Right.
0: We are making parts of the virus, if you were, if right. it were for lack of a better term, really. Right. So we're, we're making a portion of it, the spike portion of it, mm-hmm. from synthetic material. Does that explain why or at least in
1: part why it was so quickly developed or Absolutely, yeah. So they the reason they could bypass using cell lines to reproduce it because they normally you put the virus in a cell line so that the virus can reproduce over and over again within these cells and then you can those fetal cell lines that we talked about before. Exactly. Right? So you could make lots of copies of the viruses and that you can extract and then you can, you know, attenuate them or sometimes there's live virus vaccines where they inject the actual live virus into you well you can skip all that if you're just simply making strands of mrna in a test tube right and so that's how this has gotten out to the public faster i mean there's a lot of shortcuts to talk about um but um is that they're able to to bypass a whole large production aspect of it and just oh this is the sequence of mrna i want to make my test tube we can make it over and over over again using pcr type mechanisms And voila, you can you know package it and send it out. Okay. So
0: being that we're injecting synthetically made genetic material for the very purpose of hijacking your own cells. So I think that's important for the listeners to understand that this is how this technology works, right? What the laboratories are doing is they're making a portion. Of the virus, not so it's not the entire virus, but just the spike protein parts of the virus, but synthetically made, and injecting that into you for the very purpose of these going out and actually taking over the function of your cell. So Mm -hmm. so if it does interact with the cell, it changes the very operation that it's doing, right? So if it interacts with a muscle cell in your arm, instead of operating as a muscle cell, part of that system of of muscle, it now is operating to
1: produce more of these spike protein pieces, right? Exactly. Yeah. So you're you're kind of shutting down the normal protein production in that cell. And instead, the cell is being used to make exclusively spike proteins, right? Mm -hmm. And that's again, that's just how viruses work in general, as their goal is to stop the host cell from making its own Um, proteins and say hey just make me please you know right so question for you
0: and maybe this is too early on to to know in reality or maybe this i mean one of the things i think both of us have found is that there's there's a general whitewashing of information that's going on out there so it's hard to, to come by some of the the information that for questions that you do have but wondering like if a virus or or any kind of cell for that matter naturally reproduces itself, then it is making a copy of itself from the genetic material that it has. And it is the very function to basically make a copy of itself that we do know mutations happen. But but generally speaking, the operation of that is to make something that is an exact replica of itself. In the fact that we're in a laboratory synthetically making material and mass and we're not having a natural replication, but we're just creating it. Is there a risk for getting that sequencing wrong in those situations? Is the, like, or is it not?
1: No, I, I don't think so. And produce mRNA. It's a pretty short strand of mRNA, okay. Um, and you have just a very small template that they're building it off of. So I don't think that they would um, make incorrect copies. However. I'm naturally very skeptical of these things and especially this mRNA technology. It's actually very interesting because the, the man who is the co founder of one of these companies producing the mRNA vaccine, his name is Derek Rossi, and some of his past work is highly interesting. And Moderna stands for modified RNA. And so, what he was doing is he's using mRNA to trick cells into being something other than what they originally are. For example, one of his papers. He takes red blood cells and he puts mRNA into these red blood cells and he can get these red blood cells to turn into stem cells, to turn back into stem cells, which is very impressive. Right. So to, to answer your question, I think I myself am skeptical of the actual mRNA sequences they're putting in there, right? Because mm-hmm. I myself don't trust them. I don't trust that what they're saying is necessarily there. So the danger here is I don't know what they're putting into you. They say they're they, they could be making the spike protein, but if you want to believe that that's that's your deal, but uh, right. I I I don't I'm not saying they they aren't, but but they could they also could. do something else
0: too, right? Exactly. If they saw a reason to do that, exactly. So I think up until this point in laying this out, I think that's kind of like a good transition point for us because up to this point, it seems almost that well, hey, maybe this mRNA thing or the COVID vaccine, isn't all that bad of an idea, because what we've basically laid out to them in the process is that, well, it doesn't take as long, it's not an entire virus, and we're eliciting the um, immunoresponse based off of only a portion of a virus instead of the full-on virus and the infections that it can cause and everything like that. so. First part of the question is, does that mean that there aren't risks associated with this or lower risks associated with that?
1: Right. So theoretically, because in in most vaccines, right, you have a whole bunch of, a whole host of other ingredients that are in those vaccines in terms of adjuvants, polysorbate 80, these type of things, all that stuff that can cause allergic reactions, very well. They're designed to cause allergic reactions essentially because they're stimulating immune responses because they're toxic, right? Mm-hmm. That's not in the mRNA vaccine, right? So another aspect of this is that the, the only other ingredients in the mRNA vaccine are a bunch of antioxidants. And the reason they have those in there is because oxidative damage to mRNA means that the mRNA is not going to be turned into protein, right? So they, they put a lot of antioxidants in there. But the other thing is they, they actually encapsulate this mRNA in like a lipid shell, so a fat shell, if you will. And that shell is made of what's called polyethylene glycol, right? And polyethylene glycol is known to cause anaphylaxis, right? So an allergic reaction. But it's also been used in a number of technologies for drug delivery systems, right? And specifically, there's a whole host of literature out there showing that these, what are called this, this, this polyethylene glycol is a, a nanostructured lipid carrier. And what they do is they package drugs that they want to get into the brain, into things like polyethylene glycol. And, and there's other lipids that they can use as well. Polysorbid 80 is actually another one, so that it can specifically target the brain. So there is that inherent risk there. So the, the risk for the mRNA vaccine is actually a mechanistic risk more than it is Well, you're putting a bunch of other aluminums and that type of thing in the vaccine.
0: So the way that it works is actually risky itself. The way that the, the mRNA vaccine actually operates in that hijacking of the cells right. is itself one of the inherent risks in the... the I keep referring to it, we, we talked about it's not, I'll, I'm probably for the sake of simplicity going to continue to re- refer to it as a vaccine. We know it's not yeah. actually a vaccine, technically speaking, but, but it, it is inherent risk the way that, that it operates. Right. So I guess with that, I mean, so it's that idea of well, we used like the muscle cell before that they injected into your arm. And so if that mRNA adheres to a muscle cell that would hijack that cell. That would make that cell replicate the spike proteins mm-hmm. instead of perform its function as a muscle cell. Now you've got millions and millions of muscle cells. So some of those being hijacked is not the worst risk in
1: the world. Right. But we can't stop it from hijacking other types of cells, right? So it'll go it'll go everywhere. It'll enter your bloodstream and it'll again it'll be random
0: where it eventually ends up then. So it could end up going into a, a leg muscle cell which again probably not the worst case scenario right probably not going to have too much in the way of adverse side effects but it is just as equally able to infect a heart muscle cells right and that could be potentially more dangerous mm-hmm. and and as you were just pointing out with the, with the idea of the being surrounded by the fats the lipid fats there the um, the polyethylene glycol it's not only capable, but actually even more suited to hijack neurocells, your brain cells. Yes, definitely. Yep.
1: And so just to be clear too, the reason that they use the polyethylene glycol is to break through cellular membranes so it can access the the internal portion of the cell where the ribosomes are at. So that's why they use polyethylene glycol. So it recapitulates kind of the what the spike protein would do in the in the real wild virus, mm-hmm. um, the polyethylene glycol is achieving that. So it'll break into the cell and then release the mRNA inside of the cell.
0: Right, and so where, in order to like destroy the function of your arm muscle, you'd have to infect a huge portion yes. of the cells of your arm muscle to really have a real adverse effect in the operation of your muscle, your arm. Mm-hmm. Your brain is not that way because it's working off the synopsis and, and that interrupting that circuitry actually could only take a small amount of infection to right, absolutely to, to do, do that. that, right? Yeah,
1: yeah. And also too, that another aspect of this is that I'm questioning, because I don't know the answer to this, but it's how much mRNA are they putting into your cell, right? How much, how much spike proteins are being made in there exactly? Because right? is, is it like an overwhelming amount? Is it going to cause an immunological response to the tissue that it's, that it's at, not just the spike proteins, right? So there's, there's a lot of unanswered questions that are out there about this. Oh, so, yeah, you, so
0: you mean that like if it, your body could start to actually attack its own cells because it recognizes if you have a bunch of, well, again, muscle cells, right, that are or blood cells or something like that. That are infected with these protein, the spike proteins, then it could start also recognizing your own
1: muscle cells or blood cells as enemy cells and fight against those. Right. And that's actually one of the primary concerns about this one, too, is the risk of infertility, right? And that stems from a process known as pathogenic priming. And so what that means is portions of the spike protein and Actually, most of the proteins in the SARS-CoV-2, they share sequences, protein sequences that are similar to proteins that occur naturally in your body, And there's a controversy over whether this spike protein shares similarity to proteins that are expressed on, in the placenta, right? So when the placenta, if a woman becomes pregnant and she has had the vaccine in the past, and so your, your immune system's primed to respond to the the, the spike protein. However, now it's seeing something that looks a lot like the spike protein that's on the woman's placenta. Their immune system could attack the placenta and and destroy the placenta. So that's uh, that's an example of uh, pathogenic priming.
0: And that's a good point too. I mean, as a concern, not only because the idea, I mean, if it destroys the placenta, the woman is going to miscarry. Mm -hmm. And for us, you know, when we talk about being concerned about we start off the show by saying, you know, how we know that a lot of people are upset or worried about regular vaccines using fetal cell lines because it comes from an aborted fetus. Mm-hmm. If if that is one of the I mean, that that is one of the potential side effects is the destruction of your own placenta, you're essentially creating your own body to produce abortions. This right. is really what is is occurring yeah. in that so it's 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 important to understand, exact, we're not saying that when we say infertility here, we're not saying that a woman can't become pregnant, that us, the egg will not be fertilized. In fact, we're saying that that process would still actually happen. The real risk comes in is whether they could develop a center to promote that life growing in the mother. And if that's destroyed, then it couldn't. and then you're essentially going to just continually miscarry because of that and you know any woman that has had a miscarriage knows how how devastating that can can be just from a natural occurrence. Now think about it as being something that happens with regularity because of something that you have done and if I remember correctly, that's not a a theory of potentially happening thats just come from like some random person looking at it. Didn't that come from somebody actually that worked for Pfizer? Yeah, that's exactly right. It's so one of the main producers of this vaccine. It yep. was a whistleblower on that, right? Yes, that's right. Uh, it's Professor Yerden. Yerden, yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah, and uh, I believe he was like a vice president yeah, for Pfizer. He was not like he didn't work like in the stock room, yeah. you know, or like just some guy, you know, kind of schlubbing along at the at the at the at the, the microscope. like he was one of their executives he's himself a doctor and was one of their vice presidents and probably for obvious reason is now a former vice president of of pfizer and he was one of the ones that raised this as a serious concern kind of indicating that it goes beyond just like well this might potentially happen but this is something that is a legitimate risk that has yet to be addressed in any way shape or form by the companies that have developed this um, as being a potential side effect from it uh, and some and some women that that receive that so I do think that that's that is an important aspect
1: another really concerning aspect of past attempts to make vaccines against coronaviruses because they've all exclusively failed is a phenomenon known as antibody dependent enhancement and this is a Truly, only happens with vaccination, is, and it's been performed in multiple animal studies. Is that when they try to make a vaccine for a coronavirus, the vaccine doesn't have any totally abnormal responses itself. However, when they, they do a challenge trial, that means they give the, the wild virus, they reintroduce the wild virus to these animals after the vaccination. The result is that the infection is far worse. And the mortality rates were go through the roof, right? And so, another another reason why we haven't had a, a cure for the common cold, so to speak, a cure for the common coronavirus is that in all of these studies where they try to make a vaccine for coronaviruses, the animals die off when they are exposed to the wild virus again.
0: Oh, so it could potentially end up having the opposite of the desired effect. That, Correct. That by getting the vaccine, you increase the risk of death because you're going to encounter if the virus is around you're going to encounter if it and can. Right. and so what was the, the incidence
1: called again the antibody dependent enhancement and so so what that means is you know normally you expose to a virus your body makes antibodies to the virus antibodies attached to the virus um there's different types but like, like neutralizing antibodies stop from binding to its targeted receptor and in this case it these antibodies aren't neutralizing the virus they're actually binding somewhere else on the virus that actually helps it infect cells easier right Wow yeah wow that's
0: uh, I, that's incredible that's that's something that, that and that's already been shown to have happened in previous attempts yep
1: with, SARS, with the SARS vaccine they did I think it was like three or four animal studies, mm-hmm. and they saw that that phenomenon in all of them
0: yeah Another another thing you kind of. Spurred in my mind too is that as we continue on, we're not done with the risks of the mRNA vaccine. So you know, but this is just as a a little aside because your comment kind of sparked a memory in some of the research that I was doing. That you know, we don't think about the fact that they have attempted to make vaccines for other coronaviruses in the past, and it ties in with the importance of realizing that when when we sit here. And look at it, we think, well, it's probably safe because these companies, you know, if everybody gets sick, then they can just sue and everything like that. But that's not the case, right? Because they're protected by American law. And that's something that very few people actually realize. But written into American law is that vaccine companies, you cannot sue them if you have adverse effects from a vaccination. And that's a universal, any vaccine, you can't do that. now. Why that's important in general is because, well, you know, they're basically free from repercussions. There is some sort of like small, from what I understand, there's like a, like a pool that they pay some money into as part of like operations. And then if you have a legitimate claim, which good luck trying to prove that that was legitimate to the government to get this money. But if you can, then you're entitled to like a small check, a relatively speaking small check for your death or your completely debilitating disease that you may have developed from the, from a vaccine um, rather than being able to sue and get monetary gains from from the companies. But why that spurred a, a thought in my mind was because when you said about how other COVID vaccines have universally failed, I thought back, it, it wasn't that long ago that we had a perfect example of those two aspects combining a failed vaccine attempt with effects on human beings um, in the trial studies where they were able to effectively sue because it wasn't in the United States. It was in the United Kingdom. And it was, I want to say around like 2010 or so. Uh, I'm not sure it's the exact year. But at that time, there was uh, a trial vaccine out for the original SARS COVID vaccine and in the, in the UK. Oh, no, for H1N1, sorry. And the, the H1N1 vaccine was given to some test studies in, uh, for humans in the United Kingdom. And what they found that was a, a, an effect of getting them was there's a large portion of them that developed neurological diseases that, again, points to that idea of whatever function of that messenger RNA from the, from the viral load of the corona vaccine, and which includes spike proteins, because at that time they were using whole viruses but it would in, it would include those spike proteins that we're trying to replicate now did pass into the neurological system and created a large number of people who ended up with neurological diseases most notably was narcolepsy and there were various other ones that also had taken place where these were life altering these people could never get rid of them they had them forever after that point and they had the recourse in the UK at that time to be able to at least sue and get money. They won the lawsuit. They each got you know a large sum of money, or I'm sure they don't consider it a large sum of money, but there's a notable sum for the, the group that, that sued. And the group that sued, I think it was like 80-something people, and it was recognized to be only a small fraction of those who actually were negatively affected by that. But here in the United States, if that happens, we don't have that recourse to have. You're out of luck. Moreover, and I think this also goes along with it, is that we're technically, and very few people, I just learned this recently, the whole entire distribution in the United States of this vaccine, it's still part of clinical studies. It's not like completely approved yet. I mean, it's. Allowed to go out to wide distribution, obviously it is, but when you go to get it, what you are technically doing is saying signing up for clinical study of this vaccine. And what that does is it further insulates those those companies from any punitive damages for health effects. You know, now you're entitled to essentially nothing at all because you of your own free will have signed up. For participating in a trial of a new pharmaceutical. And I think that's really important that people understand that this is still a trial drug. And these things are dangerous, as can be seen by many examples of so many other drugs and vaccines out of the past. Those things are inherently dangerous in themselves. But now we have like the perfect storm of all of that. We have essentially brand new technology that's never been tested in this way on human beings until now developed in the most rapid fashion possibly meaning that the first case in the United States of SARS-CoV-2 the new coronavirus is what march right and here we are by the end of 2020 the same year the vaccine was already out for distribution whereas in previous years, the quickest one ever developed was, took several years to, okay. to get to distribution point after testing. So it was, you know, I think it was five years. Yeah, four or five years. yeah four, or five years. four or five years. And moreover, you have a situation where the pressure to do so and the monetary gain of doing so has never been greater. I mean, pharmacy companies are monetary cash cows to begin with. But now you've created this massive incentive because we said we need a vaccine. We need it as fast as possible. We need it ready to distribute to as many people as possible, as quickly as possible. Here's a huge amount of money to do research or development for it. You will get a huge, another amount of, even bigger amount of money if you are first to market with it and first to distribution with it. And by the way, any kind of potential risk that you may have If something goes wrong, we've completely eliminated that. So you have nothing but monetary reward for really quick, rapid development of something that's never been tested ever before and without any chance of any repercussions to that. I mean, I wouldn't trust a car that was developed in that way or a a chair, let alone something that could change or end your life. And so I think that's a really important fact you know that you hit on about it's not that we haven't developed vaccines for other coronaviruses it's that they have never ever succeeded and now with the least amount of testing and the shortest amount of time developing and a brand new technology in a brand new technology we're expecting this one should be completely bereft of bad effect, Mm
1: -hmm. that is really a leap. Right. And uh, that's playing out before our eyes, actually, with what's happening. We we, We have a very small data set so far, but in the United States alone, this is as of January 7th, 2021, and this is according to the VAERS reporting system. And the VAERS reporting system is the Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System. According to that, there's been 66 deaths in the United States from the COVID-19 vaccines already, right? And also, there's a caveat with the VAERS reporting system is that it is notoriously low in its its reporting incidences. Actually, the HHS, the the Department of Health and Human Services in the United States here, they actually gave Harvard a million dollars to study the VAERS reporting system, and they found that less than 1% of adverse vaccine reactions are reported to theirs, right? That's data pre-COVID. Mm-hmm. And these vaccines quite clearly are under a higher degree of scrutiny than any other vaccines, quote-unquote vaccines, uh, in the history of mankind, right? So that we might be seeing it a lot more deaths because we are looking at it a little more closely and people are paying a little more attention. But nonetheless, let's say a highly underutilized system yeah
0: and i think also the reality of right now though too is you know like you said it, it is under under a little bit more scrutiny because we're all looking to see you know there is a nervousness in the population at least a portion of the population about this thing to see you know where we end up with it but there's a flip side to that coin though too because we found it more than amply in doing research that there's a general whitewashing of information that is going on out there. I mean, in researching for this, the amount of times that I recalled articles that I had seen come out before or things that I knew to be true already because of past events that were already like established fact. And, and these weren't things that, like, oh, I think this happened or I wonder if this happened. Like, I already knew that it had happened. And then I would go to search for it today. And what you end up with is just a large amount of all these articles, essentially, that are new articles where they just simply say, well, that wasn't actually connected or that was misconstrued or whatever. No proof, no evidence based on those things. And we, we are seeing a whitewashing of information here to to cover up for that. We're, we've seen it in the statistics of COVID-19 as it spread and infected and killed and things like that we've seen it in the information coming through the news all you have to do is turn on your tv or turn on your computer to see that there's a definite narrative push being delivered and we've seen it in the way that the the vaccine has been promoted it is supposedly the beacon on the hill you know that this is and without justification or or reason for that and then you couple that with the aspect of who are the first people to get this yes some of the doctors and, and nurses are getting it but then other than that it's mostly octogenarians nonagenarians in nursing homes and so when they die those are probably not being submitted to the various reporting system because well you're 88 years old you know you died because you died, right. now that didn't matter when it came to coronavirus. You could have been eighty eight years old and had a heart attack, but because you had coronavirus, you were corona death, but now that you're eighty eight years old and you have a heart attack or you have a stroke shortly after you got the vaccine, well, now that's chalked up to well, you were just you're eighty eight years old like of course you died, you know, like we were expecting you to die at some point along the way so. Even though I think there is probably some more scrutiny for a younger person, perhaps receiving it, I do think that, like you said, that 66 is probably a super small fraction of actual deaths that may have been related to it, because we would associate an, uh, an old person dying just as part of the natural course of life that, you know, and I'm, I was going to apologize, but I think all of our listeners who are eighty something years old know that that is the natural course <laughs> of life, and that at that point in time, you know, I'm not trying to to be insensitive here, but you know, it is a re- reality that just is going to happen, and and so this idea that 66 deaths unvears reporting, and that represents, let's even just say, if it, it's one percent. Then we're talking over, you know, in the first few weeks, we're talking over 6,000, 7,000 deaths that have happened from the coronavirus vaccine. Even if you double that and say it's 2% of the reporting, you're still talking three, four, 5,000 deaths that have occurred because of this virus in the country already. And it's not just old people that are dying. I mean, there was only one news agency, it was the USA Today, actually even mentioned that it had happened. There was a case in Florida recently of a 58-year-old doctor who, by all other accounts, model of perfect health. He exercised every day. He hardly ever got sick. He was fit, and he was actually worked with COVID patients. He was a frontline doctor, all of these things, and he was actually a very Pro, the, like he was an advocate of this new vaccine. So when it got offered at his hospital for the frontline workers, he was one of the first in line, signed me up. This is all from his wife. His wife says this, that he was very excited about the vaccine and promoted it to other people. They should get it. Well, he was injected with it. And then two days later, he started noticing all these red spots on his feet and on his legs and everything. And they were bothersome. And so he went to the hospital and got checked out. And they did tests, blood tests and everything, and they come back with this frightening reality that his platelet count was zero, not like way down. He literally had no platelets. His body had completely stopped making platelets, and they knew that it was an effect from the vaccine. They listed it on their charts. They put it in their paperwork, everything. This was the one thing that has changed in this man's environment was that he got this vaccine, and now two days later... His body has stopped making platelets. He went from healthy to really in great, great distress. And they tried all these treatments. They could not get his body to restart making platelets. And ultimately, he ended up having a hemorrhagic stroke and dying because his body could clot. It didn't have platelets any any longer. And again, this is something that the hospital verified, that the wife verified. This is the, something that happened to somebody that was a very big promoter of the vaccine and the attempt at whitewash the bottom line of the article contact pfizer and pfizer just responded that we do not believe it's connected to the coronavirus vaccine but we're looking into it all evidence points that it was and they just come up with a blanket statement with no evidence that it wasn't so you know this is like this is a, a serious concern these things we also saw Again, you know, whitewashed now, but it was a big deal in, in the trial periods. I mean, technically, we're still in the trial, I guess. But, but, uh, but, you know, during the official trial periods, though, when they were still calling it, even amongst the, the population, uh, a general trial, clinical trials of the, the, the new vaccine, they had a large swath of people coming down with Bell's palsy, mm-hmm. which is a, a paralyzation of, of half of your face due to neurological condition developed, which was caused by the mRNA vaccine. So serious, serious concerns connected to these things. And I I think one of the biggest things too is that we don't have any information on whatsoever other than to point to the potential infertility, the potential for the inability to... Fight against the wild form of the disease in the future. Like those potentialities, we also don't know at all
1: what long-term effects may also exist out there. Right. This is actually true for the vast, vast, vast majority of vaccines that are out there. Is that there really is never longitudinal studies performed? You know, versus a true placebo group. So we don't, especially in this one where the the, the trials were months long instead of you know requiring years, if not decades long, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, we have no idea of the, the actual long-term effects of the mRNA vaccine. And we also have no idea of what happens when you give it to children, mm-hmm. which
0: I'm sure is going to be part of the plan too. You know, I mean, if these are having these effects on a, on adults whose development is complete, what about a child who is in the early stages of development and that these vaccines are creating... What could be exponentially a larger problem in them too, because they're they're so much smaller. They're still developing. They're still growing. They're still all of these things. That, as far as I know, I, I don't know of children's studies having been been done for this. I don't think that the, you could ethically do that, like have a bunch of little kids who can't even sign consent sign up to consent to it to an experimental trial. Mm-hmm. So. There's a, there's a real lot of concerns here. And that's our message from this, is that at the surface level, and even when you start to dig into the science a little bit, it seems like, hey, this isn't too bad. We have a disease that we need to help treat, and we have this new means of treating it, but guess what? It doesn't have as much of the, the junk added to it In the American versions of it, this is mostly to do with the Pfizer and the Moderna versions throughout the the United States. There are other problems could be associated with other vaccines and some of them will actually use fetal cell lines for delivery and stuff like that. But this one avoids actually injecting it with fetal cells. This one actually avoids a lot of the other, all the adjuvants, the, the things that cause an adverse effect in your immune system to help the response. It avoids some of the you know the nasty additives and things like that, while not being completely exempt from it, because like you point out with the propylene glycol, it has its own other ingredients that are that are concerning in it. Propylene glycol just being one of them, but and probably the chief amongst them. But the actual technology itself, and the fact that you know this is something we've never had success in ever being able to vaccinate against, and the fact that there are people who are really raising concerns about this and that we are actively silencing them. The doctor from Pfizer, who was the vice president, if you go to post something of his concerns on Facebook right now, it'll be fact-checked and said false information. Mm -hmm. I posted a, a video of an ER doctor giving a talk where she raises some of these concerns. And I just went to share it on Facebook, on social media, and it immediately was censored for being false information. I actually clicked on that one and it's, you see, why is this false? Because this lady is just laying out some science and not even saying that it's definitely going to happen. She's not even an opponent of vaccines. She readily admits that all the other vaccines she and her kids have all received and she would do it again and everything like that. She's concerned about this one in particular. And I clicked on like, why is it censored and listed as false information? And it said that there is no link between the new coronavirus and negative health effects. I mean, that's not true in any medication in the world. So, any doctor, any scientist, any source of information out there who tries to even question the narrative, hand we've never seen a censorship so great as this one as we are seeing now. But when we combine those things together with the inherent risks that clearly are there and examples of people dying people getting sick people having adverse effects already in the very infancy of its trial i I think we can safely say that you can't recommend jumping on that ship i mean certainly not early you know at the very least you have to take that step back and say you know i'm not going to be the first one in line and and i think even more so I mean, just a general caution in, towards this whole entire idea, because it is fraught full of question marks and, and caution signs. Mm-hmm. And the problem is, is that if, if you don't pay attention to them, you really stand the risk of becoming one of those statistics. Yeah. And, and then it's too late. By the time you realize that the adverse effects are happening, there is no recourse to be had to re- undo it. You can't unvaccinate yourself. You can't remove this RNA from your system. You can't undo the damage, the neurological damage, or the cellular damage, or whatever other potential difficulties come out. You can't undo those things. And when we've seen something to be already so politically motivated, and so dishonestly covered, and so grossly promoted, and again, this is just a radio program. You know, We're just giving you some base Information. And just in that, when you start to pull back the onion skin a little bit, you start to realize that there really is a really, really dangerous core to this thing and, and a lot of questions yet to be answered. You know, I think that that's really the importance of that, that we cannot caution enough in this. And you're going to continue to see it on your TVs, you're going to continue to see it on your newsfeed. And every single one of those things is going to promote it as the best thing since sliced bread. And we're here to tell you that the facts lay somewhere quite differently. And, you know, maybe in the course of time, far down the line, these things will be assuaded. But for the time being and for the, any kind of even remote future, we can't caution. I don't mean to put words in your mouth, Dan. I mean, you're the expert. Oh, yeah. I'm definitely
1: not taking it and my wife and kids won't be taking it, so. I think that's probably the the best form of
0: advice right there. You know, what the people who are actually experts in the field and who are, uh, you know, truly really trying to find the true facts, the, the actual facts. And I think it also merits saying, when Dan and I both went into this, digging into and doing study in this, we had an active conversation where we said that if the information takes us to a realization that it's actually safer than other vaccines or it's actually a positive thing, then we're not gonna to try to hide that. We will present it to you as we find it, as objectively as as at all possible, with removing as much of our own prejudices or biases or anything like that as possible from this. In fact, when we started Researching vaccines in general, I was much more of the mindset of like, ah, eh, you know, they could be good, they could be bad. I'm not really 100 sure. It doesn't really matter. It's not sinful. That's okay. And you know, the more digging, the more concerns that were raised. But then when we came to the mRNA vaccine, and we really started to dig into that, it has opened up a whole different level of concern. And I hope that you get from these podcasts, that that is where we're at. We look at this and we say that this is something really and truly dangerous and unproven. And at best, something to be avoided for quite a while until it can be proven to be otherwise. And at worst, something to be avoided forever. You know. Mm-hmm. So thank you for joining us on the Restoration Radio on this episode of Pastoralia. Again, thank you, Dan, for joining me absolutely thank you for having this episode and i hope that you all found it enlightening and you know i'm not going to ask if you enjoyed it because i'm sure that some of this stuff is disturbing or or bothersome but i hope you did find it informative i hope you do understand that it is truly with the purest of intentions that we present it and we hope that you are better informed and can make good informed decisions based off of that all right thank you all very much and god bless you